All right, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew is where we are. We began just a few weeks ago, verse-by-verse verse study through Matthew. Absolutely, I have, I have really enjoyed digging in and studying. Today is a fun passage with a lot of information. So as always, before we step into God's Word, let us pray. Let us look to our God. Heavenly Father, we love you tremendously. We give you thanks for our life, Lord, for chasing us down, for making yourself known to us. Thank you for gathering us all here this morning, whether we knew it or not, Lord. You knew that we'd be here this morning. You know exactly where we're going to be in your word. None of this captures you by surprise at all, Lord. So for each of us, individually, for us as a congregation, Jesus, we're here to sit at your feet and listen and learn and grow and understand. But more than anything, Lord, we're here to be changed, to be transformed. I don't want to be the man that I was yesterday. I'm definitely not the man I was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. But Lord, I'm not who I want to be yet because I want to be just like you. I want to think how you think. I want to love how you love. I want your compassion. I want your wisdom. I want your very life for all eternity. And what a promise it is that you've given us your life. So thank you, Lord. Give us all the ears to hear what your spirit would say. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Gospel of Matthew begins with that this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, the promised king of the Old Testament. He is defined as the son of David, the son of Abraham, and all of that means... We've covered his birth narrative that we are not just talking about a man, but we are talking about the very God who created the heavens and the earth, became a man in his miraculous con conception, his miraculous birth. His name is not just random in that his name is Jesus, but his name is Jesus with the definition that he will save his people from their sins. Last week, we covered in chapter 2 the coming of these wise men, the Magi from the East. More than likely, they had their information about the Messiah from Daniel all the way back in history, and they showed up looking for the king of the Jews, and as they were doing so, they were rejoicing greatly. They were presenting Jesus with gifts. As the king of the Jews at that time, Herod was looking to eradicate this promised Messiah so that he could keep his kingdom. And he wasn't able to destroy Jesus, but he did destroy the lives of many young, two years old and under children in Bethlehem where Jesus was born. We sat in all that last week. Now we're picking it up in chapter 2, verse 19. Now when Herod was dead, praise the Lord. It's really, it's, it's hard to sit in this. You sit in the, um, the narrative of some people's lives. Some people are super dark. Some people do a lot of damage in other human beings' lives. And it's, it's always a miserable testimony to sit in. And there's always a, if that person and when that person passes, there's kind of a collective sigh and a collective relief in the culture and the circumstances when a dark soul passes away. The thing that we always need to keep in our mind is that I know to me, at one point, I was a very dark soul. And through a series of decisions and life circumstances, my life could have imaged Herod's, but Jesus intervened into my life, and I'm imaging Jesus rather than a dark soul. I am imaging the one who is defined as light. Nobody who is still breathing is without hope. Talk about last week, Herod grew in his paranoia. So when this man dies, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus 
was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there and being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, plural, he shall be called a Nazarene. So last week we have this, the testimony that God sent to Joseph an angel in a dream to warn him to rise up, to get up and flee. And they flee in the middle of the night to flee from the persecution of Herod that was coming. And they were successful in their fleeing. And now as they've lived in Egypt, they've been existing in Egypt, Herod has died. God, God sends an angel again in a dream to give him the message to arise and go. There's a contrast between the fleeing and the going. When they fled, they were fleeing for their lives and for protection and for safety. As they come back in that instruction, it's not get up and flee from Egypt, but we've sat in the testimony already that this is the fulfillment of prophecy that out of Egypt, God has called his son. And we're going to sit in this idea of each, every single one of us and every single human being throughout history lives their own Exodus story. If you know the story of Exodus, you have the children of Israel, they're in bondage and slavery and harsh slavery in Egypt. Egypt becomes an image and a representation of the world and how the world can shackle all of us. And there comes a point where God has sent us a deliverer, that deliverer in Moses in Exodus, our deliverer is Jesus, where he brings us out of that bondage and he brings us into his presence and into his promises the major themes of the Exodus story. We're going to sit in that same imagery this morning when we sit in John the Baptist's life. But before we get there, there's this idea where here's an Exodus story for Joseph and Mary and Jesus coming out of Egypt. And now that they're coming back into the land of Israel, uh, Joseph has fear in his soul. And the fear that he has, his life has been preserved from the wrath of Herod. But as he's coming back into Israel, uh, there's this understanding that, you know, not much time has passed. So as he's coming in, that the authority has been handed to Herod's son, Archelaus. And this guy's just as wicked as his dad. So the fear that's in Joseph's soul is confirmed uh, by God in a dream. So he's given a dream, he's given a warning by God that the fear that he has, it's legitimate. So God warns him in a dream not to go and dwell in the land of Bethlehem, which seems to be where they were aimed, which is close to Jerusalem, but instead to turn up and go to their hometown of Nazareth. Now, in this, in this, Matthew is saying that this is fulfilling what the Old Testament has said in regards to Jesus being called a Nazarene. In this, he uses the idea of prophets because this is not the fulfillment of a singular prophecy, but it's an idea. And there's two main ideas, and both of them I find legitimate, but we're unsure what Matthew meant when he says that this is the fulfillment of the prophecy by him dwelling in a community called Nazareth, that he would be called a Nazarene. But for the first one, turn quickly in your Bibles, if you can, to Isaiah 11. In Isaiah 11, this is going to feed into uh, baptism that we're going to sit in with uh, John the Baptist. And next week when we deal with Jesus' baptism, these ideas are going to continue to play out. Isaiah 11 says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. When we look at a banner of declaration over the life of Jesus, that is definitely that banner, and we are going to watch the Holy Spirit descend upon him next week, but you don't have to wait for me to teach it. You can read ahead if you want. But the main word that we want to pick out of this is that word that he shall be a branch. You sit in Zechariah, Jeremiah, Isaiah. There are others where Jesus is called the branch. Um, this, this title and this word, it comes out of uh, that declaration to David. 
that he would have, his descendant would sit on the seat of his throne for all eternity and all of that imagery. And it's out of that root of David, there has grown this branch, this vine. Said in the gospel of John, Jesus calls himself the true vine. He is the true vine. He is the true source. We are branches of him. So this idea that he would be called a Nazarene, it comes from this Hebrew word for branch, which is netzer. So one of the main ideas is that when he is identified as a Nazarene, he is identified as the predicted branch of the Old Testament and all the messianic imagery associated with Jesus. That's one side. The other is the whole idea of a Nazarite. That comes out of Numbers chapter 6, has a whole protocol for somebody who is dedicating themselves and sanctifying themselves, setting themselves apart to the Lord for a period of time. We don't see that Jesus ever took on a Nazarite vow, but we see that his entire life images for us in regards to what it means to be fully dedicated, fully consecrated, fully set apart to the Father's will. So this idea of branch and this idea of Nazarite are both playing into this, this declaration that he shall be called a Nazarene. And now as we shift out of those, these first couple chapters, just giving us the background of his origins, his birth, that early fleeing to Egypt, being called out, called out of Egypt and finding himself in Nazareth, which is in the region of Galilee. Now we are shifting into this, this preparation idea through John the Baptist and this is awesome. I counted up the references. I mark up my Bible tremendously. I create my own little study Bible and definitions and cross-references. And I try and keep it clean in the sense of I'm only writing down important stuff. I counted up my references that I have pinned down in my Bible, and there's over 30. So just so you know how rich this section of Scripture is and the imagery, we're clearly not going to go pressing into all of those. But this is a passage This in these next 10 verses or so that you really want to sit in and know the culture and understand who it is that John the Baptist is and what it is that he's doing. So let's read through this. Chapter 3 says, In those days... John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, everybody think itchy, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid at the roots of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize with water unto repentance, but he, being Jesus, who is coming after me, is mightier than I, whose sandals, everybody look at my feet, sandals, there's my object lesson for the day, you're welcome, I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his, fleshing, uh, his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. All right, back to verse 1. In those days, you got to fast forward, you know, from the last verse that we just read in regards to Jesus landing in Nazareth. He's a young boy at that time. You're now fast forwarding in history roughly 30 years. 
And it's in those days that John the Baptist, we don't have that testimony here, but you can go read in the Gospel of Luke. You have his background, his birth, miraculous birth story. Both of his mom and his dad are shriveled up in their own age beyond childbearing age. And God gives them this miraculous gift of a child. He is related to Jesus as an extended relative. We don't know how much interaction they had growing up. They definitely would have known about each other and each other's birth stories and their narratives for sure. Our assumption is that they had interaction also. But as we talk about John the Baptist, told you before, and we're going to continually bring it up in Matthew's gospel, Matthew has issues with who? got issues with the religious leaders, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. John is considered in history, we don't know it for sure, but it's a, it's a strong assumption that he's part of another sect called the Essenes. And these were, this was an aesthetic group, an aesthetic group where they have intentionally removed themselves from the religious uh, culture of Jerusalem, and they are there in the desert, in the wilderness, at the northern end of the Dead Sea, seeking the Lord. They have their very specific, specific messianic prophecies, their interpretation of the word. It's understood, again, that John is part of this sect. So in his, in his religious upbringing, in his relationship with God, is in his understanding of the word of God, as he's looking at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and calling them a brood of vipers, that we're going to get into in a minute. John has the same issues with the religion of the day that Matthew has. So again, this is a, John is a hero. We are told by Jesus that there was none greater born among women than John. So we need to have this kind of idea in our head in regards to who John is, who he was destined to be, who he was raised to be who he was called to be, who he was anointed to be, and ultimately, he's a preacher. How many of you guys know what the word preach means? So, in, again, in our culture, if somebody starts preaching it good, what do they start doing? They get a very specific preaching voice, and they're huffing and puffing a little bit, and, uh, you know, they're calling down that fire from heaven, all that kind of imagery, right? When you say that somebody's preaching. All a preacher is, it's announcing. It's proclaiming. It's declaring. The difference between preaching and teaching is as a, as a preacher, you are just proclaiming the message. A teacher is going to sit down and give context and give understanding, give knowledge and wisdom to the message that's being announced. So ultimately, like in a pastoral role, a pastor, that gift, that calling is seen as both a preacher and a teacher because it involves both roles. John is going to be a preacher and a teacher as he is out there in the wilderness proclaiming the word of God. So as he is announcing, he has removed himself again from that religious environment of Jerusalem, and he's out in the sticks. He's by the Jordan River. He's away from culture. We give this, we're given this definition that he, uh, he's, he is an image of the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament. So in 1 Kings 17 is when he first shows up, all the way into 2 Kings is Elijah's story. John is not Elijah reborn, but that spirit, that spirit of prophecy that is, it was upon Elijah is the same spirit and that same testimony that is upon John the Baptist's life. There's that connection. At the same time, Elijah, we are told that he never died, that he was directly caught up into heaven in that narrative. And that's our understanding in the testimony of Revelation 11. There's these two witnesses. One of them, we are like 99% confident that Elijah is going to be sent back in the future to proclaim and to announce the gospel to that future culture and will be killed at that time for that proclamation. Lots of information here, but that's the connection with John being clothed in a camel's hair. This is a, this is a prophet's garment, and you see that garment on Elijah in the Old Testament. He's eating, you know, he's got grasshopper legs stuck in his beard, and I hope that he had more food than just that because he's pretty skinny and malnourished if all he's eating is bugs and wild honey. If you want to eat something really gross, gross, you know, go get yourself some cricket protein. I tried that one time. It's really nutty. It's kind of nasty when it advise it. All right. 
for those, if you've been paying attention, that icon that I have of Matthew for the sermon. So iconography, it's, it's mostly found in its origin in the Greek Orthodox Church. But in iconography, uh, a big piece of it in, in its painting, so when you paint the faces of you know, historical figures, um, it's part of preaching the gospel to an illiterate culture. So when you sit in, as the church is there in Greece and in that culture in the time, the majority of the people couldn't read the word of God. So as they entered into these churches and congregations, the gospel would be painted on the walls. So whenever you see Matthew, Matthew's got this great set of hair that I do not have. It's flowing. It looks like he's got some moose in it. He's got this wonderful beard. Matthew always has the Bible in his hand because this is his gospel. Usually there's an angel associated with that imagery whenever you see Matthew. John's iconography, when they, you see John's picture in history, the dude's got dreadlocks, his hair is all over the place, you know, he's kind of like a two shots of espresso kind of guy multiple times per day. He comes across, he's just intense, he's weird, he's, he's you know, he, he's, he is totally different from the religious culture of the day. But as he's out there proclaiming, he's proclaiming this message of repentance, Repentance is a fun word to say, but how many of you, when you hear the word repentance, does it feel a little like dirty, like you got a finger poking in the chest, like you're a sinner and you're unclean and you need to be cleaned and you need to repent. Do you get that kind of taste from the word? I hope you don't. Because when John is conveying this idea of repentance, this becomes the foundation. These are the first words of Jesus's public ministry is repentance. The whole idea of repentance is you used to think this way and now you've had an encounter, you've had an interruption, you've had a circumstance in your life that is changing the way that you think. And this interruption, this encounter is to be with your creator. It's being, it's to... This is what your culture has taught you. This is what your religion has taught you. This is what your house has taught you. This is what your friends have taught you. And a lot of that, there can be total truth and wisdom and love and God's grace. All the good stuff can be a part of that. But this emphasis on repentance is this is who you were. This is how you thought. And now that you're encountering your creator and his kingdom, it's right at your hand. It's with winning grass. His kingdom is knocking on the door of your soul right now. His kingdom is coming soon. Jesus can come this afternoon. He can come in a thousand years. I think he's coming soon. But his, his kingdom is near. Right at, right at your fingertips is how close his kingdom is. Therefore, stop thinking like the rest of the world thinks. Stop taking on and absorbing the philosophies of the day and the, the, the politics of the day and the religion of the day and the what's cool of the day. Here John is out in the middle of the wilderness, away from everything that would be defined as cool and important, looking like a crazy prophet. And he's out there and he's communicating this message of repentance. Stop living your life the way that you've always lived it. Has that been successful for you thus far? I know for me, as I look at my history, as I look at my 47 years of history, all that's good in my life, all that is right in my life is in relationship and is sourced from the Almighty God. When I look at the baggage, when I look at the darkness, when I look at the issues in my soul today or my issues in history, again, it's, it's all of the stuff, it's the former things, it's all that that I want to put away and put off so that I can be fully clothed in him. That's the weight of repentance. And every time you hear that word, that's what you should be thinking. I'm not who I was. Jesus, I need you. I need more of you. I want to be like you. Change me. Transform the way that I think. Don't let me think like I used to think, but create in me a new mind and a new heart that your word is written upon this fleshly heart, and you've given me your mind so that the words that come out of my mouth, that they're not me, that they're you. And they're sourced from you and your heart. This is the message that's being proclaimed by John in regards to the kingdom of heaven. Turn quickly again back to Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to read a little bit more of the context in regards to this proclamation of who John is there in the wilderness. 
In Isaiah chapter 40 is a radical transition in the prophecy. If you're familiar with Isaiah's prophecy, it's 66 chapters. Verse 39 have a lot of history in a very specific tone. Beginning in chapter 40 on, it's, there's, a, there's a radical shift. If you want to have fun and get excited and be elated and encouraged and just let's go God kind of attitude, go read Isaiah 40 on because it's awesome. So here, comfort, yes. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her. And again, to put, put, uh, put John in this context, he's speaking comfort. He's speaking words that are building up and encouragement and comfort. That her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. Praise God. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Here's the quote. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The way of the Lord, uh, Genesis, I think it's in, it's Genesis 17, Genesis 18. There's a specific line that says that God chose Abraham because he would teach his children the way of the Lord. And the way of the Lord there is defined as doing, making, producing righteousness and justice, that that would be the product of our lives. In faith, not through going through a, a list of do's and don'ts in your life, thinking that that's going to cause you to be righteous and just, but this whole idea of uh, the way of the Lord in its definition, it's walking in his paths that he defines for us. So there's this preparation idea. There's a voice in the wilderness, the wilderness uh, for the Jews, again, that points back to that Exodus scene where they are taken out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness for 40 years before they are brought into the promised land over the Jordan River. We're going to talk about in a minute. In, uh, in Isaiah's time, there is a future wilderness experience coming for the Jews, and there is one that's in that wilderness, in that voice, preparing the way of the Lord, encouraging the people to repent, to turn back to the Lord, to change the way that they have thought, and to do, to make, to produce righteousness and justice in their lives and in their culture. Rather than crooked ways, twisting and turning ways, the straight way in the desert, not this narrow path, but a highway, a broad way, uh, not the broad way that leads to destruction, uh, but the idea that when Jesus takes us out of our sin, he places our feet onto a path. In him, he is the narrow way, but in him that path becomes very broad and filled with a lot of joy. I hope that made sense. There's a narrow way, there's one way with Jesus. In Jesus, our path becomes a highway. It is straight. Every valley shall be exalted, lifted up. Every mountain shall be... Uh, brought low, the crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its loveliness like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Had to read that. Awesome. Turn back to Matthew. So here again, Matthew is pointing to John the Baptist as the fulfillment of this voice in the wilderness and all the imagery, the Exodus imagery that's going on there in Isaiah. Uh, we don't have time, but you can go read uh, Malachi, the very last prophet of the Old Testament, chapters 3 and 4, talk about this voice, talk about this, uh, this messenger of the Lord and the call to repentance. Uh, Malachi 3 and 4 are both awesome contexts that help give definition and clarity to John the Baptist's life. 
But as he's out there, as he's preaching this message, as he's this crazy prophet that's separated himself from the religious culture of the day, he's pursuing the Lord, he's pursuing the Lord's word, he is called and anointed, he is out there proclaiming a message of repentance, he is out there proclaiming the, the message of the kingdom of heaven, which again is God's government, not man's government, and not only government, but economy, and justice, and righteousness, and morals, and ethics, you lead through all the thing that Jesus represents as king in his kingdom, these are all the things that John was out there proclaiming. And then we get this testimony that Jerusalem, so Jerusalem's, it's a, it's a hike up into the mountains, and it's not just a hike, it's a good day's journey, plus all of Jerusalem's coming down, and not just Jerusalem, but the, the region of Judea. Who John is, the message that he's proclaiming, he's becoming popular in the sense of people are pressing into his message, they're responding to it, they hear it, they feel it, they understand it. They, we've sat in the Roman oppression of the day that the Jews would be feeling. Um, so everybody's yearning and longing for the kingdom of heaven to come. They're looking for the Messiah. People feel the weight of religious hypocrisy and stupidity and all the ways of man that don't save and all the rules of religion that are they're just junk. The culture feels it. And now this, this message of this voice that's crying out into the wilderness, he's preaching the truth. He's preaching with authority. He's different than everybody else. And he's attracting the crowd. And as he's attracting the crowd, what is he telling them to do? Hallelujah, me, does John say? No, there's this, there's this, it's a, the baptism that John is performing is specific. So the Jews are very familiar with baths. They're called mikvahs. And John, if he's part of the Essenes, again, there's, there's all this archaeology where these mikvahs, it's a, it's this stone bath that's been plastered that would be filled with water. And there's these very specific ritual washings. They were there at the temple. Uh, they're found in the priest's residence in Jerusalem today. You can see the, the remnants of all of these mikvahs. Very specific religious washings. The washing, the baptism, the immersion that John is pressing into here at this time is the, the washing that the Jews would require a Gentile who is converting to Judaism to perform. So, so sit in the weight of that really quick. So as a religion, as a culture, they have all these religious washings and the imagery and what they mean. And John is not participating in that religious stuff in Jerusalem. Here he is out in the wilderness with a different kind of washing. And the washing that he's conveying is to the Jews, you need to be converted just as much as the Gentiles need to be converted. And this message preaches right into the American culture today. It preaches right into the church culture where we all have to take this warning of, am I just doing my religious stuff? Am I just doing the tradition that's been handed to me? Is, is my doing and my making and my fruit, is it just a product? It, is what I am producing just that which is, uh, you know, the community and the religious community has told me to produce with my life? Or have I truly been converted in my own soul, in my own life, in my own relationship with the Almighty God, and my life has been immersed into him? I have died with Jesus on the cross. I have been dead and buried with him in this symbol of of what baptism represents. Yes, water, it's, it, there's a washing there, there's a purging, there's a cleansing. But when we rise up out of that water, the images, I am new, I have been converted, I'm not who I was. That is what John is proclaiming and preaching in the wilderness. That's the baptism that he's communicating. So again, the message that he has, it's in opposition to the, not just, it's in... Um, it's with that power and authority. It's not just an opposition to, it's, it's, it's religion that brings clarity and truth and understanding with it. Because again, as he's looking at the Pharisees and the Sadducees that are coming to him, asking who warned you, who told you as good religious, sound Bible teachers, you're the children of Abraham, who told you that you need to flee from the wrath that is coming upon the Gentiles? You understand that message that he's conveying? 
So when all of Jerusalem and all of Judea is coming out to John and listening to his message, there's a conviction in the soul. There's a conviction in the mind. There's this realization that, that just because I'm a child of Abraham, just because I'm a Jew, just because I've been circumcised, just because I've been raised in this and understand this and I'm part of this culture, there's this recognition of every soul that, you know, apart from God's life, I'm a dead man and I am broken and I am dark and I need to be washed and I need to be cleansed. And this act of baptism, they're confessing their sins. This is, this is, this is how I've celebrated my religion and my teachers rather than celebrating my creator and who I am created in his image, who I am apart from him in my sin, who I am in him freed from my sin. This is what they're confessing. This is what I've done. This is where I'm wrong. This is the thoughts that I'm turning from. There's a true repentance and conversion. And they're getting into this mucky Jordan River, and it's brown water, and they're getting dipped into it and immersed into it. And it's all of this imagery. And before we continue on into the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the rest of John's me message, why he is at the Jordan... Again, it's Exodus imagery. You know what it's like to have been a slave of others. You know what it's like to walk in this life in a relationship with God, in the very presence of God for 40 years, but still to have a very powerful wilderness, desert experience in rebellion, in being parched, in being famished, all of that imagery that the wilderness conveys. There John is in the wilderness, standing on the border of the Jews being in the wilderness on the east and crossing over the Jordan into the promised land. So the image that John is conveying to the whole culture of who Jesus is, right? He shall save his people from their sins. Told you before that Jesus' name is Yeshua, Joshua, Yehoshua in Hebrew, which is Joshua's name. Again, where John is, he is imaging this crossing over into God's promises, into a land where warfare needs to transpire, but this is the land that God has promised to you. That's why the baptism is going on there. That is the imagery that he is conveying in that crossing over. And Joshua's chapter in Joshua chapter 3 and 4 is that whole scene recommend that you go read it God commands again there's a miracle of the parting of the Jordan River as they cross over on dry land they take 12 stones out of that riverbed and they go set them up in Gilgal and at the same time they set up 12 stones in the midst of that river as a memorial of what God had done in history and what God had done on that day in history. So all of that is weight and imagery that John is conveying in his time to the people. So now, as he's there in his camel hair, grasshoppers in his beard, probably hasn't had a bath in a while, sticky beard from the honey, right? All this imagery that we have of him. He's looking at the religious leaders, and do you know what he calls them? Your mama and your daddy, they were snakes. Is that how you start a sermon? I mean, th think of what he's doing. All, he's, all these people are coming out. And they're coming because they're hungry. They're yearning. We want truth. We want safety. We want life. We want freedom from sin and darkness. This is a yearning of every human soul. And here, it's not just the people of the area that are coming out to John, it's also those who represent the religious classes. Now, we don't know why they're there. Are they there because John is the popular speaker and they're coming out to do their homework on John and to figure out why John's doctrine is wrong so that they can go back home and warn all the people, you better not be going out to that Baptist, right? That's part of the heart and part of the attitude. How many of them are also sitting in John's message like, wait a minute, I hear the warning. I hear the warning about the God's wrath that is going to come. Some of those individuals are going to be hearing and pressing into that. Some of them are just in their religious 
training and doctrines and dogmas and practices, thinking that they're holier than thou. That when John sees them and they're all identified by the garb that they're wearing, by their religious robes, so that they would be known and recognized and celebrated for their religious piety, John looks at them and says, You are the offspring of a snake. The voice that you whisper is just as deceptive and just as false as the snake in the garden. Who warned you to flee from God's wrath? That's the beginning of his message. And as he sits in this, as he confronts them, as he challenges them, you know, this isn't like a private one-on-one meeting, right? This is in the ears of everybody around him. John's a teacher. John's a rabbi. You know that John's got disciples, and when he called them a brood of vipers, I can just see John's disciples giving each other a little fist bump. Can't you? Like, you get him, John. You tell him. But that's not John's heart. It's not Jesus' heart. It's not my heart. It's not the heart of the word of God. The call to repentance is for everybody. Hear, hear the voice of God. Hear the truth. Return to me. Come, anybody. And then that's what he presses into. He wakes them up in regards to their identity and their religion and their teaching and their doctrines and all this stuff that they have going on. But he immediately presses into If you truly have a changed and converted soul, if you were truly our creators, then your life is going to produce. This is our word for workmanship, our word for poem. Your life is going to make, your life is going to produce the fruit that is complementary to a life that is truly repentant. I know when my life images something else other than God. I know when my behavior, my mouth, what's going on me is producing Blake in somebody else's life. And I also know when my life is bearing the true fruit of the almighty God dwelling in within my soul, changing me and transforming me. And that's the message that he's getting to. And as he sits in this message, saying, don't think that just because you're the child of Abraham, that you're anything special. You're anybody's soul. Every individual requires the same conversion. Whether your mama was a good Christian or it was your granny or whoever you have in history and your blood and those surrounding you, doesn't matter. Your salvation is dependent upon your own faith in your personal Savior. And once you have that faith, then it's our faith together. He is our God, and we are one in him. But don't just think because you've got these other identifications over you that you're something. And then again, in this image, John can point to the stones that are around him, and these stones are going to point to the memorial stones of Joshua's day. God can turn those very stones into his children. Do you believe that? You should. You know why? How did God make Adam? Oh, dirt. That which makes up a rock, the minerals, the stones, that which makes up our bodies, the chemical elements, is what God formed a human being out of and breathed into that human being the breath of life. Don't think that you're anything special. Don't think that you're anything different. Oh, God loves you. But don't think through your identities and your labels and your doctrines and your religion that that is what saves you, because that is not true. God can make the very stones his children. But what is he called out to us? This imagery of an axe that is laid to the root of a tree. It's getting in all this imagery that is conveying in regards to fruit. But if you take an axe to a root, you're cutting off all of the tree, its whole source of nourishment. And that's, that's the warning that's to stand there. Therefore, if a tree, and again, this is all imagery, if your life doesn't bear good, through, good fruit, it is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's going to get back to that message in just a second. He says that he's baptizing, he is immersing, You to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and to the people that are there listening, I am baptizing you with water and all of that imagery unto repentance, a change and a transformation. 
John is a good preacher and is a good teacher. He brings it to the heart of the matter, and the heart of the matter is always about Jesus, the one who has coming and the one who is going to come. He who is coming after me, he's mightier than I am. He's stronger than I am. This whole idea of his sandals, he's not worthy to carry. Um, as a, in a, as a rabbi-disciple, a teacher-disciple relationship, a disciple ends up being, in a lot of ways, a servant of the master, a servant of the teacher. But a disciple of Jesus or a disciple of John, the master cannot require in this time in the culture to require you to carry his sandals. That's a job for a slave. So in all of that imagery in John chapter 13 where Jesus girds himself and he washes the disciples' feet, he takes on that position of a household slave washing the feet of the disciples. And Jesus says, the example that I have just given to you, you go and do likewise amongst yourself. Serve one another, love one another. But what John's conveying here, he's saying, I'm not even worthy. I know that there's a, there's a gathering, there's an influence, there's, there's a message that's being proclaimed. The religious leaders are coming to John. John can have a lot of ego in his time and in his culture, but in his humility, he's like, I'm not even worthy to be a slave of the one who is coming. Why? Because what's he going to do? I'm baptizing you with water, which is just an image doesn't truly clean, only he cleans you. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The idea, again, of we'll sit heavily in the baptism of the Holy Spirit next week, looking into when Jesus gets baptized and all that imagery. But the idea of the Holy Spirit and fire, um, it's in the Malachi passage in chapter 3 in regards to uh, John being that voice in the wilderness and the messenger. It talks a lot about uh, this, this refining fire, this purifier. Fire is something that purifies a metal, it burns out all of the junk metal, you clean off all the dross, and you're left with pure metal is the idea of being baptized, immersed into fire. Yet at the same time, at the time of his harvest, so when Jesus comes back, it's, it's, it's given this agrarian farm imagery of harvesting a crop. A winnowing fan is... Uh, specific time to do this, but when you, you know, you break all the, the, the seeds of wheat off the head of the stalks, that kind of stuff, you've threshed it, which is this, uh, you know, you've had this sledge that's been pulled over it to break the seeds off of all the stalks. A winnowing fan is this instrument that you use to, to throw all of this up into the air. The heavy seeds come back down to the ground and the chaff and the stalks blow away in the wind is the imagery says he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquench unquenchable fire. Worship team, come on up. This, uh, you can sit in a lot of religious preaching that's known as like a hellfire and brimstone message where it's this whole idea of turn or burn. Like, you better repent, you sinner. If you don't repent, God is waiting and he's excited to burn you up. And that's not the heart of God. However, it is true that God has wrath. He has anger towards all that is in rebellion against him. Anything that is defined as unjust, unrighteous, unclean, disobedient, devious, twisted, not pure, all of that imagery that we have, any of that which lacks the image of God, there is a righteous, holy anger towards it. And that includes the human being who remains by choice in their sin. The message has gone out. The message is being conveyed by John in his day. A message of conversion is necessary. That conversion only comes through faith. It's the same message that we preach and proclaim through Jesus Christ. It is what we are announcing that he did on the cross. 
our God became a man for the singular purpose of dying for our sins. The wrath that is towards our sin has been paid for. But you have to receive that payment to yourself. And it's not a work. It's not an action. It's God, I know, and I am under conviction, and I understand that I am broken, I am off, and I need to be washed. So I'm coming to be washed through the blood, through the sacrifice of your son. I'm coming to be washed in that water and that imagery of baptism. I'm coming to be washed through the power of your Holy Spirit and that reality of the Holy Spirit taking up residence within us. I am coming to you, Lord. I want everything burned out of my soul, just like a fire would burn up the useless chaff that is not good for anything. Lord, that which is in within me that is not good for anything, that is not worthy of you, that's not worthy of of being delivered to my brothers and sisters or to another human being. Burn that junk out of my soul, Lord. The heavy weight of the gospel is upon those who refuse to turn and to listen and to press in. Because those who refused are promised the wrath of God for all eternity. And the imagery is an unquenchable fire. If it's a real fire or not, I don't have a clue. I know in the soul, in reality, and all that imagery, it is an utter agony because it is an existence. It is a life of death for all eternity separated from the true and living God. So when you sit in the weight of these first few chapters that we're going through here in Matthew, it is all conveying there has come one, and that one is the promised one. And he loves you, he likes you, he wants you, he's here, he sees, he's ready to cleanse you, he's ready to keep you clean. When you misstep, He's not waiting to just throw stones at your head, but he's there to remind you, to redirect you back to himself. And that's what John was doing as a good messenger, as a good voice out there in the wilderness, conveying to his culture, come to the one who's mightier than I am. Come to him through communion. Come to him through worship. Come to him through prayer right now. If you're good, if you're solid, then you start praying for those souls that you know are off and not solid in your life and in your context. And may God use you as a voice in that soul's wilderness to bring in refreshing. Amen?